This is Our American Stories. Americans have been celebrating George Washington's birthday on February 22nd since 1885. But in 1971, President's Day was enacted, which celebrates the births of Washington and Lincoln every third Monday in February. We plan on helping that situation a bit by giving President Washington, the father of our country, not his own day, but his own hour. The poet Robert Frost once remarked that George Washington was one of the few in the whole history of the world who was not carried away by power. Washington could have become King of America if he wanted to. Instead, America's first general became the United States' first two-term civilian president, something a world familiar only with hereditary monarchs had never seen. Napoleon, as he lay dying on the island of St. Helena, condemned for having seized the power of an emperor, complained that his critics wanted me to be another Washington. Underneath the man who has become namesake to thousands of small towns, high schools, the nation's capital, and the 42nd state, whose image is reproduced endlessly on coins, currency, and stamps, and a huge bust carved into a South Dakota mountain, we find a man seeking to belong, longing for acceptance and respect. Parson Mason Weems, an Episcopal clergyman and sometime bookseller, is the source of some of those pious stories about George Washington, like chopping down his father's cherry tree. The real George Washington is born in a modest farmhouse in Northern Virginia on February 22, 1732. The first child of a middle-aged father and a second wife. In the mid-18th century, Virginia is a province of the British Empire. Its sparse population of mostly British descent see themselves as Englishmen subjects of the king. But the British see Virginians as crude colonists, second class in every way. Washington's father Augustine dies when he is 11. George inherits a farmhouse left in trust to his mother Mary. But the bulk of Augustine Washington's estate, including the sizable plantation at Mount Vernon, goes to his older half-brother Lawrence. Unlike Lawrence, who's educated in England, George's formal education ends when he is 14. Lawrence convinces Mary Washington to send George to him so that he can teach the boy the ways of society. I wish you were my brother, not my half-brother. I feel all of you is my brother. <laughs> so I am, George. Forever. As George's surrogate father, Lawrence offers guidance and contact with the wealthiest and most prominent family in Virginia, the Fairfax family which he has married into. The rough young man learns his social graces by quietly watching and imitating those in Lawrence's charmed circle. Acutely aware of his own lack of sophistication, fearful of social missteps, Washington develops lifelong habits of social reserve. He studies books on manners. He reads English magazines and translations of Roman classics so that he would have something to say at dinner parties. But to become one of the elite, George needs to make money. By 17, he is working as a frontier surveyor in the Appalachian Mountains. At 18, he buys his first piece of land. Washington, like all Virginians, needed land. 
Land was the most valuable commodity uh, in an in agrarian society. Uh, they needed land to replenish their tobacco fields, which wore out in four to eight years. They needed land for speculative purposes, for a rainy day. It was the one form of inheritance they could pass on that would be of great value to their offspring. The land west of the Appalachian Mountains bears a wilderness of inconceivable magnitude and unimaginable richness. I never knew it was so big, so rich, so green and untouched. Wherever we go, I feel that we're the first to ever walk this land. Indians are out here somewhere. Few Americans have seen it, but the British crown wants it. So does their arch rivals, the French, and both have to reckon with the Indians who live there. Washington has surveyed it, and in 1754, he comes to fight for it. After all, as a soldier of the British crown, he can rise higher in society than any mere surveyor. He is now 22, six feet three inches tall, a major in the Virginia Regiment, and after years in the backwoods, as tough as the terrain. A smoldering Cold War between England and France, fueled by conflicting land claims on two continents, hits a flashpoint in the Ohio Valley. In Europe, this conflict will be called the Seven Years' War. In North America, it is known as the French and Indian War. Eventually, the French will be driven from America, but at such a cost that the British will raise taxes in America to pay for the fighting. This leads to the American Revolution, in which the French aids America. The French will pay for this with higher taxes, which leads to the French Revolution. Washington is called to the Virginia Governor's Palace in Williamsburg. Now I should like to consult with you upon a matter of great import. The King of France, not satisfied with the vast province of Canada, has decided to make open trespass on British soil. He has sent soldiers into our territory, thus flouting British sovereignty established by God and King. They build forts, trade with our Indians and otherwise encroach upon our sacred rights. I have received orders from His Gracious Majesty to send an emissary demanding that they depart. Sir. Before you recommend someone, sir, I think you should know that the French are a treacherous people. This emissary will be in considerable danger. Yes, sir, but... Which is why I need someone who can travel hundreds of miles through unknown mountains, has experience with the Indians, and is possessed of a hearty constitution. You were about to recommend someone, sir? Your description fits only me, sir. Washington is sent out on his first assignment. His job is to lead 139 men to the forks of the Ohio River and build a fort there before the French can. His only military preparation consists of fencing lessons and having read two books on the art of war. But the French beat Washington to his goal, and now his Indian scouts tell him that the French are sending a party to ambush him. Washington leads his men on a night march towards the French camp, where he finds 40 men sleeping. At dawn, he strikes. A few minutes later, 10 French, including a French ambassador, and four Englishmen are dead. The French court brands him an assassin. The French and Indian War has begun. And when we come back, more on the life of George Washington.
is our American story, celebrating the life of George Washington. As always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Let's return to George Washington's story. Later at the Battle of Fort Duquesne, Washington demonstrates that what he lacks in strategic ability, he more than makes up for in sheer bravery, when he has two horses shot from under him. Three years later, again at Fort Duquesne, two groups of Virginia militiamen stumble upon one another in the wilderness and mistakenly open fire on each other. Washington rides between opposing lines, knocking away guns on both sides with his sword. 14 are killed, 26 are wounded, Washington isn't touched. At 24, he returns a hero to his fellow Virginians. But when he seeks a commission as a full British officer, not just a Virginia colonial officer, he is rudely rejected. Your arrogance defies me, sir. We are at war with France. And you, sir, were the man who fired the shot that started this war. He resigns from the militia in protest. Good day, sir. Denied advancement in the British Army, he realizes that if he is to make his mark in the world, he must do it as a civilian. What's so touching about his experience of the French and Indian War is that it was the making of him in a way that he did not expect. Instead of being the making of him as an element of the glittering gentleman's world of the British Virginia Empire, it was the making of his experience of human vicissitude and the forging of his character and I suspect the beginnings of those personal feelings which made it possible for him to be a rebel leader where once all he had wanted was to be an imperial guard. Then in 1752 after having found the town of Alexandria, Virginia, George's half-brother and father figure Lawrence dies of tuberculosis. George becomes the owner of Mount Vernon. He's got lots of land, but little money to work it with, and he is alone. For 10 years he has wooed a succession of young women, all of whom reject him, some because he isn't rich enough, and some because they are put off by his restrained personality. Then George is introduced to Martha Custis, a 27-year-old widow and mother of two, Martha is five foot tall with a pleasant appearance, is slightly plump, shy, and serious. Universally liked and easy to talk to. She is also one of the most wealthy, marriageable women in all of Virginia. Her husband, Daniel Custis, has left her 17,000 acres of tobacco, hundreds of slaves, and several farms. I feel warm and at peace here in your dear presence. Forgive me, I don't know why I've been talking so much upon such early acquaintance. I'm usually more reserved than ladies. I too feel safe and at peace in your company, sir. And that is all I need to know at this moment. The two only spend 20-some hours together before George proposes marriage. Here they come! Within the year, they are married having spent only 15 days in one another's company. In marrying Martha Custis, 
Washington finally enters the world of the Virginia elite. She was uh, extremely supportive of him. She complimented him in many ways. Uh, she was, um, she socialized more easily than Washington did, liked to talk uh, with friends and greet them, whereas Washington was, I think Washington was a little bit shy. Um, and he was, his size was intimidating. He used to frighten the children. But we're told that Mrs. Washington grabbed him by his lapels and pulled him right down to her face when she wanted to talk to him. Well, my future is to be a farmer and a husband. There'll be no British general telling me how to plow my field or love my wife. Credit extended by British tobacco agents enables Virginia planters to live opulently. But credit also puts them in debt and constant droughts keep devastating crop production. As tobacco prices fall, their debts mount. George and Martha face a dilemma. Washington faces economic collapse, but he's equally fearful of what others might think if he's unable to maintain his style of life. If I economize, Washington writes in a letter, such an alteration in the system of my living will create suspicions of a decay in my fortune, and such a thought the world must not harbor. Image is all important. Washington staffs his residence with 14 servants and seven slaves. But unlike many of his contemporaries who defend slavery, Washington believes that slavery debases both slave and slaveholder. Washington has the resources to pull himself completely out of debt if he sells all of his slaves. But he says, I refuse to participate in that practice of selling slaves. It's wrong. Jonathan Alton, Washington's longtime plantation hand, attempts to sell off the slaves. Washington responds immediately. I gave you no authority to sell any of our people. Colonel, you instructed me to cut costs because of our drought losses. I've told you before, Mr. Alton, I will not break up families. There will be no sale. By not selling slaves without your permission, we can go bankrupt. Virginia law, of course, does not recognize slave families or slave marriages, but Washington does. Washington treats them like family, which is why after they're released following his death, the former slaves come back and take care of Mount Vernon and his and Martha's grave. Of all the founding fathers, Washington is the only one to free his slaves. But Washington is broke. He sees his and his fellow planters' problems as one of dependence on their British agents, the men who sell Virginia's tobacco in Europe and who purchase finished goods on their behalf in London. He was persuaded that they palmed off the shoddiest goods on colonials. All of this simply intensified his sense of anti-colonial discrimination, this time within the context of the imperial commercial system. Although Washington believes he grows the best tobacco in Virginia, he decides to stop growing the labor-intensive, soil-depleting crop and grows grains instead. He is soon selling his produce in Alexandria and buys finished goods from local importers and American manufacturers instead of buying through London agents. Within a decade, he is out of debt and a firm believer in American economic independence. As the British Parliament levies one burdensome tax after another on the colonies, Washington begins to see advantages in American political independence as well. 
and when British troops sail into Boston in 1768, Washington sees them as nothing more than tax collectors in red coats. Soon, Washington joins Patrick Henry as one of the most influential members of the Virginia House of Burgesses. But along with his appointment, also comes a learning curve. The first time that Washington ran, he neglected the usual practice of uh, treating the uh, voters with, with uh, alcoholic beverages on election day, and he lost. The next time he was careful to arrange for some of his supporters to see that the, uh, the bar was open and plentifully supplied, and he won. As relations between Britain and the colonies deteriorate, Virginia sends Washington as one of its delegates to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. By the time the Second Continental Congress convenes one year later, fighting breaks out between the Massachusetts Minutemen and the British regulars. President recognizes Mr. Adams, Massachusetts. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. It is no exaggeration to say that between 1774 and 1777, Independence Hall in Philadelphia glows with more intellectual candle power than has ever burned in a single place before or since. Ben Franklin, John Adams, his cousin Sam, John Jay, the men of the Virginia delegation, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, Edmund Pendleton, and then there is George Washington. If he'd had the kind of raw ambition that he'd showed in the Seven Years' War, the leading revolutionaries of 1775 wouldn't have touched him. They wouldn't have thought of making him a commander of the Continental Army. They feared a man on horseback. They feared their own army. And the idea of having an ambitious person would have horrified them. And when we come back, more on the life of George Washington. is our American stories we continue with the life of George Washington we will be left defenseless gentlemen she didn't speak much in debates at the Continental Congress he did not have a strong voice he wasn't an orator but then neither were Franklin or Jefferson I don't think Washington was intimidated by the power of the other intellects there but he knew himself he knew he wasn't an original thinker what Washington could do was express himself with his presence, his uniform, and his habit of command. To symbolize the depth of his commitment to the cause of resistance, Washington arrives in Philadelphia wearing his splendid old blue and buff Virginia military uniform. He wore the uniform because he knew he looked good in it and because he wanted to be commander-in-chief. And he knew that if other people could see him in that uniform, 
they would see him as he saw himself in command. John Adams nominates 43-year-old Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, which will wage a war for national independence. What is required now is one able man to build and to lead this new uh, Continental Army. And who do you propose of the Massachusetts delegates should lead this force? I have but one gentleman in mind, known to all of us. Mr. President, I propose as Commander-in-Chief our most honorable and esteemed delegate, the good gentleman from Virginia, Colonel George Washington. He is elected unanimously. I am truly sensible of the high honor the Congress has done me, but I tell you now, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Washington sees his appointment as one ordained by God. Your Continental Army awaits you at Cambridge, sir. In his letters, he refers to the war as the cause, with cause always capitalized, recognizing God's providence in their resistance. John Adams prophetically writes that Washington could become one of the most important characters in the world. Washington accepts the assignment, knowing that if he fails, he would lose everything he struggled so hard to gain. He would lose Mount Vernon. Then Congress approves the Declaration of Independence, resolution asserting America's right to choose their own government, absolving all allegiance to the British crown. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political band which have connected them with another. It may have been Ben Franklin who said, if we don't hang together, we will most certainly hang separately. But it is Washington's neck that will feel the noose first. There is no turning back. When George Washington got to Cambridge to assume his new command of the Continental Army, he, all of his fears were probably reinforced. What he found, instead of an inspired band of revolutionaries, was a disorganized, dirty, undisciplined mob. I'd flog the lot of them. And he was supposed to command them and make them an army and expel the British from North America and secure independence for the American people. Yes, what is it? Sir, the British are landing on Long Island. The battle is upon us. New York, 1776. Washington is outnumbered two to one. He grew during the war as a military commander, but at the beginning, um, he showed a considerable degree of incompetency. For instance, at the Battle of Long Island, he left the end of his line open. The British were able to run around it, then nearly catch his whole army and destroy it. Washington loses New York, which begins a succession of losses up and down Manhattan Island. A skirmish at Harlem Heights, a defeat at White Plains, a disaster for Washington at Fort Washington, another disaster at Fort Lee. By November, his army has almost evaporated. Men have left or deserted to bring in harvests. Thousands have been captured or killed. Many have fallen ill, and the British are chasing his remnant of 5,000 across the New Jersey plain. By the end of 1776, the Continental Army was melting away. Uh, the jig seemed just about up. Washington 
was in despair. He started to talk about having to go hide out in the West. To his brother, Washington writes, I think the game is pretty near up. By December of 1776, the Continental cause was in very serious trouble. Washington's uh, soldiers were about to go home. Their enlistments were expiring. Many colonists were beginning to take up the British offer of pardon. They were going over to the enemy. The revolution was unraveling. And then, suddenly, at the very end of the year, in, in a bold and daring move, uh, Washington, with his small remaining army, swooped down on Trenton, New Jersey. There are few places in America where history pivots around the character of a single man. Washington's crossing the Delaware River in Trenton, New Jersey, is one of them. When Washington wins here, the tide turns with him. The watchword Washington has chosen for the Trenton attack is victory or death. 2,400 American troops crossed the Delaware in the middle of a sleet storm on Christmas night, Captain. 1776. This weather will wet the men's powder. Our muskets won't fire. Then you must use your bayonet, Sergeant. Trenton must be taken. Yes, Many things go wrong, but the genius of Washington's attack lies in the date of its execution. In their barracks, the enemy has been celebrating Christmas with rum and ale. As night comes on, so does drunkenness, then sleep. At Trenton, Washington had to try something new. Conventional military tactics had failed him. He remembered the guerrilla tactics of the Indians from the French and Indian War. So he and his men snuck up on the sleeping Hessian soldiers. Washington slipping across the Delaware, taking advantage of Hessians who had had too much to drink, surprising them in the morning and winning a very small victory. It was not a great thing in military terms, but it was very important to the survival of the revolution. The legends of barefoot soldiers leaving bloody footprints in the snow are not fiction. The tales of starvation, disease, malnutrition, and exposure at Valley Forge in the winter of 1778 are not exaggerations. One soldier recorded seeing a dead body so covered with lice that it was thought the lice alone had killed the man. Even after makeshift cabins are built and the men are out of the freezing wind and snow, each sentry still has to borrow clothes from his bunkmate before his turn at guard. As the guard rotates, so does the clothing. But there is one thing not lacking in the American camps, rum. It is calculated that rebel troops are consuming a bottle a day per man. When enlistments expire, Washington goes before his troops and offers a bounty to all who step forward and re-enlist. The drums rolled. No one stepped forward. Washington couldn't believe it. He was dismayed. He was... He was shocked. He was desperate. So he marched up and down the line, begging, pleading, conjoling his men to stay, telling them that the future of America rested with them. The drums rolled again. This time, one man stepped out, two men stepped out. And at the end, everyone who could stayed on. 
He could lead. He could inspire his men. They admired him. He looked the picture of a general. He was a responsible, careful tactician. I don't suppose any military genius, but he had the genius to lead. And when we come back, our final segment, The Life of George Washington, America's First President and the Father of Our Nation. This is Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our podcasts and to listen to all that we do. More after these messages. And now the final segment in our hour-long celebration of the life of George Washington, our nation's first president and the father of our country. Let's continue where we left off. Deeply feeling the plight of his men, Washington constantly hounds the Continental Congress for supplies, trying to shame them by appealing to their sense of patriotism. Congress's typical response is to give Washington permission to commandeer what he needs from those living near his stationed troops. Washington refuses this invitation to rob his fellow citizens at the point of a bayonet, arguing that to do so will alienate the very people in whose name the struggle has been undertaken. A struggle also exists with his generals. Washington has as much trouble with some of them as he does with the British. Men like Charles Lee and Horatio Gates, men who'd been officers in the British Army, thought Washington was a bumpkin, someone who didn't know anything about an army or how to run a war. And they caused George a tremendous amount of trouble. They conspired, they talked behind his back, they spoke to members of Congress, they tried to discredit him, but in the end, he met them with patience and persistence, and their own incompetence ruined him. And George survived, and they didn't. Throughout his career, he appears touched by God. On horseback, he leads charges into the thick of battle, willfully exposing himself to cannon and musket fire, strolling through a hail of shot. Yet not once does a bullet or shrapnel ever even graze him. In April 1781, a British warship sails up the Potomac and trains her guns on Washington's cherished home, Mount Vernon. Most of Washington's Virginia now lay under British control. The governor of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, begs Washington to come home and save his state. Washington declines. When Jefferson called upon Washington to defend his home and his state, he was talking to a Washington who no longer existed. Washington's allegiance was no longer to the country he had grown up in, English Virginia but was an allegiance to the future. Washington's record on the battlefield is three wins, nine losses, and one tie, which is no source of pride. If we succeed, we have a chance to end the war here. But the best battle to win is the last one. Surprise and terror will be your main weapons. And Washington endures long enough to win it, the three-week siege at Yorktown. May Providence be with you. 
This is where the Revolutionary War ends on October 19, 1781. When British General Cornwallis asks for the terms, Washington replies that the same honor should be granted to Cornwallis's surrendering army as was granted to the American garrison of Charleston. The point is not lost on Cornwallis. When Charleston fell to the British in 1780, the British refused to grant the Americans the honors of war, treating them as rebels and not as a legitimate army. Washington now demands the same humiliation of Cornwallis. But Cornwallis claims illness and sends a stand-in to Sir. the surrender ceremony. Earl Cornwallis is indisposed. I am second in command. In an attempt at insult, the British stand-in tries to hand over Cornwallis's sword to a French officer who had fought with the Americans. But the Frenchman refuses, directing him instead to Washington. Washington also refuses. He orders the Englishman to surrender Cornwallis's sword to General Lincoln. General Lincoln will accept the surrender. Who was the humiliated American commander at Charleston. Serve my sword. During his campaign against the British, Washington is always outnumbered, typically outgunned, and always short on supplies, weapons, wagons, horses, and boats. Yet he repeatedly slips the British noose, choosing strategic retreat over honorable defeat. He doggedly wears his enemy down. The British lose the war, not so much because the Americans under Washington defeat them on the battlefield, but because General George Washington does not give up or go away. But Washington's most important performance has yet to occur. Let me set the scene. It's the end of the war. Uh, Washington's generals and his high staff officers are disgruntled. They haven't been paid. They don't trust the Congress. They're not so sure that it's such a good idea to give over control of this new nation to this bunch of squabbling uh, politicians. Many among them wanted Washington to assume greater power, in fact, maybe dictatorial power. His officers plan a meeting at their headquarters on the night of March 15, 1783. They know how you feel, sir. So they do not want you there at the secret meeting. They will debate a move against Congress to demand their back pay, at gunpoint, if necessary. Washington knows he has to confront them. He begins writing a speech. He agonizes over every sentence and every word. He was ripped apart inside. He had suffered with these men. He'd watched them die. He'd watched them be wounded for their country. He knew what they had given up. He knew how Congress had mistreated them. And a part of him was attracted by their offer to be a kind of king. And he knew for certain that if he gave in to their offer, if he gave in to the allure of power, not only would he betray his country, but he would also betray the reputation and the honor that had been so hard for him to attain. He rides alone to the meeting. As he enters the building, the angry officers are stunned. But he sees no smiles, and there is no applause as he stands before them and begs them not to open the floodgates of civil war, which would surely drown the new nation in blood. If you will not lead us, sir, stand aside! I'll not stand aside. And if you try to silence me, you are asking for a nation in which freedom of speech is taken away. He knows he is failing, 
so he decides to read a copy of a letter from Congress, once again promising payment. It might work where his eloquence has not. He holds the letter in front of him and begins to read. I have a letter from a member of Congress. But something is wrong. And they are trying the officers draw closer. Then, Washington takes out a pair of glasses and puts them on. No one in the audience has ever seen him in his glasses before. The officers are shocked. Washington looks out at the men and speaks. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have... not only grown gray, but almost blind in service of my country. With this, he brings them to tears. He steps down from the stage and moves slowly towards the door. The conspiracy collapses. All that is left are the formalities of history. He knew that his glasses would be a symbol of his own weakness and vulnerability. And he hoped, he hoped that this would persuade his men that by betraying their country in this manner, they were also betraying him personally. It's high political acting, but what he did was he staged that performance in order to rescue control of the new government from a disgruntled military and to return it to civilian power where it belongs. And in that moment, we have fused the extraordinary political performance of George Washington, the ambitious would-be leader, and the principles about politics and about civilian rule, which restrained him even in the moment of his highest acting. Nine months later, Washington surrenders his commission and his army to Congress. The grand irony of his life, which in the beginning was based on acquisition, is that he did not secure the reputation he sought until he gave something up, power. President Abraham Lincoln once said, to add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. The path of George Washington's life is one from frontier to capital. It is one of our greatest American stories. And of all those who helped create the new nation, none are more deserving of the title, Founding Father. And there you have it, an hour on the life of George Washington. And if you can, folks, go to ouramericannetwork.org, get the link, send it to your friends. When they're driving around, they can hear this story. They need to hear and know this story. My goodness, they're not teaching it in high schools in America. They're certainly not teaching it in colleges. Well, there's one college that is, and that's Hillsdale College. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks there who teach the things that matter in life, the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their free and terrific online courses. I wanted to leave, though, with one of my favorite books and a couple of quotes. And read this when you can. Get it on audio. It's great. David McCullough's 1776. In part one, the opening chapter starts with a quote from General George Washington. The date, January 14, 1776. And he had these words to say. The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. McCullough closes with these words about Washington. 
He was not a brilliant strategist or tactician, not a gifted orator, not an intellectual. At several crucial moments, he had shown marked indecisiveness. He had made serious mistakes in judgment, but experience had been his great teacher from boyhood, and in this his greatest test, he learned steadily from experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. And that's the thing about Washington, that perseverance. Without George Washington's leadership and unrelenting perseverance, the revolution almost certainly would have failed. As Nathaniel Greene foresaw as the war went on, quote, George Washington will be the deliverer of his own country. This is Lee Habib, George Washington's story, America's founding story, here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to your stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, send us your stories, and we'll produce them, and we'll put them right up on the air. The American people have beautiful stories to tell, and we tell so many of them. And today, we seek to honor those who served our country and even given their lives. We have Joy Neal Kidney sharing her uncle's story Joy is one of our listeners from 1040 AM WHO in Des Moines, and it's a powerhouse signal, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And she's contributed to our show before, and today we hear from her again. Her piece is titled, Donald Wilson, the Humble Hero. Most of the heroes among us are just ordinary people, like my Uncle Don. I knew him as Mom's brother, who lived way out in Washington State and who liked fishing. When I was a kid growing up on an Iowa farm, the best part of getting a fat letter from Aunt Rose was a picture of Uncle Don with a big salmon. Mom's older brother had been a commercial fisherman. Even when he later took a job with the Washington Department of Transportation, he still headed out with his boat on Willapa Bay every chance he got. So every fishing season, we get snapshots of him with a huge fish hanging from one hand and a fishing pole in the other. Dressed in faded jeans and a plaid shirt, usually a vest with lots of pockets. Sometimes a U.S. Navy cap, either the USS Hancock or the Yorktown. Although Mom rarely mentioned the war, World War II, she told us that her brother Don, who grew up in the small town of Dexter, Iowa, had been a sailor on the famous Yorktown, the one lost during a big battle in the Pacific Ocean, and that he had had to tread water for an hour before being rescued. Every few years, Uncle Don and Aunt Rose would drive back to Iowa to visit. I was unaware of all the other combat he'd survived, all the heartache he'd been through, all the complexity of this seemingly ordinary man. As teenagers, Sis Gloria and I traveled by train with Grandma to the West Coast to visit relatives, including Don and Rose. 
1962, they lived in a little house out along the Nacelle River. As soon as they learned we were coming, Uncle Don added a room to their home, an indoor bathroom. Since Aunt Rose didn't drive, they had only a pickup. One foggy day, we joined a crowd of clam diggers and carried our limit home to try fried clams and to make clam chowder. Digging them was more fun than eating them for farm girls used to Iowa beef and pork. Years later, I learned that not only had Uncle Don been on the historic Yorktown during the Battle of Midway, but that he'd had to abandon ship twice. He spent an hour in the oily Pacific after Japanese bombs had crippled the ship. The next day, the aircraft carrier was listing, dead in the water, but still afloat. A few dozen men reboarded the battered ship for a salvage attempt. One of them was 25-year-old Donald Wilson. After doing repairs all morning on a lower level of the ship, he clambered up to the deck for something to eat. An alarm blared. Don jumped up and saw torpedoes in the water, speeding right at his ship. One slammed into them. He ran to the fantail and leaped a second time. A nearby ship rescued him and other survivors. The next morning, sailors asleep on the deck were nudged awake as the carrier began to sink, her battle flags still flying. Many of them wept as they stood at attention to witness their ship roll over and plunge into the ocean. Donald Wilson first joined the Navy with his older brother in 1934, during the Great Depression where there were no jobs for teenagers, not even for their father. Don stayed in the Navy and in 1937 became a plank owner on the brand new Yorktown, meaning he was a member of the crew when it was placed in commission. I served on her 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 whole life. Don later wrote of the ship. He later received a citation signed by Admiral Chester Nimitz for being part of that salvage attempt. I'd written to Uncle Don and Aunt Rose for decades, but after Grandma died and getting to read the family's war letters, I started a correspondence with Uncle Don that lasted the rest of his life. I wanted to make sure he had all the medals he was entitled to. He said he didn't want any, that he was no hero, and wasn't interested in medals. That is until I learned there was one for that citation. When he finally received it, he proudly framed all of his medals and ribbons. Uncle Don was also a plank owner on the USS Hancock, another aircraft carrier. The Hancock was in combat in nearly every major naval battle during those last desperate months of the Pacific War, except when out of action for repairs after being attacked by a kamikaze. All five Wilson brothers of Dallas County, Iowa, served in World War II. The three youngest, Dale, Danny, and Junior, lost their lives, two of them in combat. Their surviving family members never got over the blows of losing these three young pilots. 
including their older brother, Don. Still in the Navy after the war, he decided he didn't want to make it a career after all. He was ready for some peace and quiet and a fishing pole. No one would suspect that the ordinary man in the snapshots with the big fish was indeed a hero, one with a poignant history. And thanks so much for that. We're listening to Joy Neal Kidney's story, her Uncle Don's story, and there are so many like this across this great country. Send yours to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we now bring you the story of an extraordinary woman who was an inspiration not only for women of color but an inspiration to all who knew her name Dr. Olivia Hooker here's Stacey Edwards with her story 10 years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery Alabama bus and 18 years before Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I have a dream speech Olivia Hooker became the first African-American woman to join the U.S. Coast Guard. 1945, I joined. March the 9th was the day we went on duty. We had been campaigning for that privilege, but nobody joined. I kept watching the newspapers, and I thought to campaign for certain civil rights and then not use them, to me... Is very futile, and somebody ought to join up after they campaign. Born in Muskegee, Oklahoma, Olivia was just seven years old when her house was ransacked and burned by members of the KKK during the Tulsa race riots of 1921, while her and her three siblings hid under a table. There were times when I didn't know about prejudice because the only people that I had seen who were not African-American were people who wanted to sell things to my father. And they brought presents for the children and listened to my sister play Bach and all kinds of things to show how interested they were. So I was totally surprised when the disaster happened wasn't a riot. We were really the victims. But it took 80 years before we got a, an apology from the mayor of Tulsa. And they admitted that we were the victims. Of course, we got no monetary uh, reimbursement, but at least they apologized after 80 years. After the riots, her family moved to Columbus, Ohio, where she earned her Bachelor of Arts in 1937 from Ohio State University. While at OSU, she joined the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, where she advocated for African-American women to be admitted to the U.S. Navy. You see, there were no uh, people of our race in the Navy, not no girls. We had been campaigning for that 
privilege, but nobody joined. I kept watching the newspapers, and I thought to campaign for certain civil rights and then not use them, to me, is very futile, and somebody ought to join up after they campaign. So I thought, well, if I go and I survive, maybe someone else will come. Although I had applied for the Navy, and they kept writing back saying, there is a technicality. They didn't tell me what the technicality was. So I said, well, let me try the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard recruiter was just so welcoming. She wanted to be the first one to enroll a African-American. Miss Hooker enlisted with the U.S. Coast Guard in February 1945. On March 9th, she went to basic training in Brooklyn, New York. When they told us to go to basic training, I took a trunk with all my luxuries in it. I didn't know. The seven girls, other girls that went when I went, all had duffel bags. Everything was new to me. They get you up at five o'clock in the morning and you do exercises for an hour before you went to breakfast. And then, of course, you had to polish your floor, even though it didn't need polishing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, they thought of chores for you. We went to Manhattan Beach Training Station, and we stayed there six and nine, 15 weeks, I think. And then when I graduated from Yeoman School, I was sent to Boston. The head of the Yeoman School, Lieutenant Isley, had written to all of the Coast Guard stations. There were 11 districts. And the only one who answered yes, they would take an African-American, was Admiral Derby in Boston. While in Boston, Olivia earned the rank of Yeoman Second Class in the Coast Guard Women's Reserve, where she served until her unit was disbanded in 1946. By 1947, after receiving her master's, Hooker moved upstate to work in the mental health department of a woman's correctional facility. Many women in this facility were considered to have severe learning disabilities by staff. Hooker felt they were more capable than giving credit and re-evaluated them and helped the women to pursue better education and jobs, a passion she inherited from her mother. My mother was a real suffragist. I mean, she was a campaigner for the women's vote and... uh, So I guess I inherited some of that. And I want to see equal pay for equal positions. And naturally, I'm trying to vote for people who believe that equal pay for equal positions should be the right of every person. By 1961, Olivia Hooker became Dr. Olivia Hooker when she earned her Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Rochester. In 1963, she joined Fordham University as a senior clinical lecturer. Eventually, she served as an associate professor until 1985, but it was her experience in the U.S. Coast Guard where Dr. Hooker realized her full potential. I didn't know many people 
that were not of my hue. And it was good for me to mix with other people and find out, you know, how they thought and what they were like. It taught me a lot about order and uh, priorities. But I would like to see more of us realizing, you know, that our country needs us. And I'd like to see more uh, girls consider spending some time in the military if they don't have a job at all and they're, they have ambition and they don't know what heights they might reach. It's really nice to have people with different points of view and different kinds of upbringing and uh, the world would really prosper from more of that. After retiring at the age of 87, she joined the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary at the age of 95. She received a presidential citation in 2011 and was inducted into the New York State Senate Veterans Hall of Fame. On November 21, 2018, she died of natural causes in her home in White Plains, New York, at the age of 103. Although she was a practicing Methodist, Dr. Olivia Hooker found inspiration in the story of St. Francis. St. Francis was a terrible boy. I mean, he did everything wrong to his family. And so if St. Francis could become St. Francis after all the things he did as a boy, I have faith that other people can change and can see the right path and not take the path that's traveled. My favorite hymn, one of them is Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, peaceful, and still. And I, I, I was just fond of that, thinking of the creator being the potter and I being the clay. <laughs> to me, that was important. For our American Stories, I'm Stacy Edwards. And great job on that, Stacy. And what a unique voice. And by the way, if you have suggestions for stories, send them to us. There's so much out there in the world, and your collective wisdom, well, we can't match it. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. A link to some audio or a video, anything at all, a story that you just saw in your local paper. Again, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Dr. Olivia Hooker's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and even public policy when it hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. You might be asking, what the heck am I listening to? And if you've been listening closely, you might be asking, are they rapping about the Founding Fathers? Or you might be saying, that's one of my favorite songs. This song, Guns and Ships, was from the Broadway musical Hamilton. The surprising smash hit, given that it was a musical about a founding father. Alexander Hamilton. And a musical that used the genre of rap to talk about a dead white founding father at that. But come on, tell me you're at least not somewhat intrigued by this absurdity. That's got to be leading the guy on our $10 bill to be rolling in his grave. And one of the other Hamilton songs, A Farmer Refuted, shows Alexander Hamilton singing it. But surely that's not how it went down in real life. Of course, Hamilton didn't sing publicly. Most of the Founding Fathers were just a wee bit too stiff for that. No, but that's not what I mean. Hamilton didn't identify himself publicly with the words, the words that the musical used to create this song. His own words. Hamilton wrote them, but didn't sign them under his name. He made himself anonymous. Specifically, he called himself, quote unquote, an anonymous friend. Now, you might consider himself a coward for not attaching his name to it, or you might not. The year was 1774, and Alexander Hamilton, then a 17-year-old orphan born out of wedlock on a tiny Caribbean island, found himself at King's College in New York City far from home. His childhood writing landed him there. Noted for its, quote, bombastic excesses with such verve and gusto that it moved the island community to come together and collect a fund to send the young chap to the big city. And the encouragement only encouraged him to write more. And how could he not? A revolution was underway. The Boston Massacre occurred four years earlier. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, yes, that Samuel Adams that inspired the beer, helped inspire a riot against the British for taxing them without representation for them in the British Parliament. And the British shot and killed five Americans. Then, one year earlier, came the throwing of British tea into the ocean, the Boston Tea Party. And then, that very year, came the forming of a protest government to the British, the Continental Congress. And let's just say that every American wasn't gung-ho about it. 
beginning, the majority of the people were against the revolution. That's Daniel Mark Epstein, the author of The Loyal Son, the book on the greatest microcosm of America's divisions, the division of Benjamin Franklin and his own son, William. His father visited him and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries because that was his side and the family's side and William refused. And William ended up being the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield Jail where he was in solitary confinement with bread and water for 18 months and suffered terribly. Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life. Whatever side you claimed, you were staking a claim to, endangering your life. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence who declared, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor on behalf of this cause, nine of them did lose their lives. 17 of them lost their fortunes, making it over a third of them who lost the first two, but none of them lost the third, their sacred honor. This reality is why one third of Americans didn't take a side in 1776. They were just hoping to survive. And according to Brad Smith, the chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, it likely was just one of the reasons, a very understandable one, why the 17-year-old Hamilton and many of the founding fathers wrote anonymously. But there were other reasons, too. Hamilton's very first published writing was a piece that he published under the title A Friend of America. And he was responding to arguments made by various loyalist preachers. Loyal to the British crown. In particular, Episcopalian Bishop Samuel Seabury, although he didn't know it was Samuel Seabury because Seabury himself used a pseudonym. He used the name a farmer. So Hamilton responded with this letter called A Friend of America. And then Seabury, still anonymously, they didn't know who, the two of them didn't know who they were talking to. Seabury responded, and Hamilton then published this paper called A Farmer Refuted, which he published under the name A Sincere Friend of America. Apparently he thought a friend of America wasn't enough. So that's the history of it. And it was very common in those days for people to write under pseudonyms or to publish anonymously for a number of reasons, including that they wanted to not necessarily have their political disagreements overflow into the social areas where they may interact or business where they may interact. They wanted to sometimes not have their you know, harsh, plain language said to one another interfere with their ability to reach compromises on other political matters. And, and above all, there was sort of a concept that readers should look at the arguments involved and that by publishing things under pseudonyms or anonymously, you forced people to deal with the arguments rather than to attack the messenger, rather than to attack the speaker. There's a good chance that the United States would not exist were it not for anonymous speech. I think the, the role of Thomas Paine's writings in particular, Common Sense and then The Crisis, were very, very important. 
and you wouldn't have wanted to publish those under your own name in, in that time because you would have risked perhaps your own death. And great job on that, Alex, and what a piece of history. And by the way, it's not just speech. People's donations to causes, well, those are private matters. And we're going to be getting into the NAACP in the state of Alabama. Because there were people in Alabama, many white people who supported the cause of desegregation. And they gave to the NAACP. And at a certain point in time, the state of Alabama came into the NAACP and said, we want those names. And we know why the state wanted those names. They wanted to out those people, have the Klan deter those people from doing the right thing. There's a history of anonymous speech, anonymous donations, and my goodness, the ultimate anonymous act, the vote. Anonymous speech, Alexander's anonymous speech, the Federalist Papers themselves, folks, written under anonymous names by three great Americans. More on this subject, it's a big one. Here on Our American Stories. we continue here with our American stories and this next one is about a really serious subject and one that affects so many millions of American families and we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and my friend Chuck Stetson and the Stetson family office does such terrific work in this area and we're doing so many really strong health stories in partnership with the Stetson family office and this is one he just kept coming at us with and just said, you got to tell this story. You've got to call this lady. And so today we bring you the story of Meryl Comer. She is an Emmy Award-winning reporter. She was one of the first women in the early 80s to host a nationally syndicated debate show. But about 20 years ago, Meryl's husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Here is her story. The man I live with is not the man I fell in love with and married. He has slowly been robbed of something we all take for granted, the ability to navigate the mundane activities of daily living, bathing, shaving, dressing, feeding, and using the bathroom. His inner clock is confused and can't be reset. His eyes are vacant and unaware, as if an internal window shade veils our access. Before I grasped what was happening, I was hurt and annoyed by my husband's behavior. Those feelings dissolved into unconditional empathy once I understood the cruelty of his diagnosis. Early onset Alzheimer's disease. He was 58. At first, I ran interference and fought for him because it was the right thing to do. He was slipping out of control, confused, childlike and helpless, his social filters stripped away. He shadowed me because I was familiar and safe, 
even when he could no longer remember my name. I always loved him, but during our marriage, he was often aloof and unreachable. In illness, unlike in health, he made me feel needed and important to him. Neither a scientist nor a neurologist, I have spent close to two decades trying to decipher what's going on in my husband's head, how hard and unfair it is for such a smart man to lose pieces of his intellect and independence as the circuitry of his brain misfires and corrodes. No new short-term memories stick. His internal navigational compass is shut down. His disease is my crossword puzzle. Harvey has long forgotten me, but I am constant as his co-pilot and guardian. Every conversation is inclusive and respectful, even though he is often unintelligible or mute. It is a charade that never ends. I bear the burden of all decisions for us both. The demons and terror of his world define mine. Any challenge is self-defeating. I play into his reality and pretend that his fate and our life together are not doomed. Unfortunately, I know better. Alzheimer's distorts and destroys shared memories that bind family ties. Caregivers are not unlike victims who survive a hurricane and find ourselves sifting through the rubble to rescue faded, storm-drenched photos or sentimental objects. We piece together what's left of our past and struggle to put down building blocks for the future. I need to make some sense of my journey through this storm. My bookshelf is lined with tomes on dementia care, yet the page I need always seems to be missing. Each brain unravels in its own quirky and idiosyncratic way. I have learned firsthand that there is no single solution to taking care of someone with dementia. Many times, personal stories involving Alzheimer's gloss over the unseemly details of care. They're written as love stories of unquestioned devotion or living memorials to honor someone during better times. Why not? As spouses and caregivers, we deserve to do whatever works for us. It's our version of pain management. But I never wanted to embellish or soften the edges around the truth. It does not do justice to the cruelty of the disease. I offer you my own experiences from a position of hard-won humility. I hope you will thread them with your own. When I say I have cared full-time for Harvey in our home all these years, many ask me why. Even now, there is always an initial reflex that makes me want to say, do I really need to explain myself after all I've been through? I realize that the question is a natural one, a human one, a social one. The interlocutors are not judging me, but rather vicariously checking themselves. In questioning me, they're testing their own capacity to deal with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and the potential impact it might have on their relationship with a partner or parent. When people hear my story, they sometimes tell me they wouldn't make the same choices. I do not hold myself up as an example to follow. No one who has ever been on the front lines of care ever questions when someone says, I can't do this anymore. But I do want to be part of the last generation of caregivers trapped by a loved one's diagnosis, an absence of disease-modifying therapies, 
and a troublesome lack of quality care options. When it comes to Alzheimer's, caregivers are frequently too worn out or isolated to protest. Perhaps this is why advocacy around the disease has often lacked the passion and energy that characterize the cancer and HIV AIDS communities. But how will people understand if we don't tell our stories without apology? Alzheimer's disease today affects a reported 5.4 million people in the United States and 44 million worldwide. Like a stealth invader, it is quietly demanding aging populations globally while pushing past cancer and HIV-AIDS as the most critical public health problem of our time. Every 68 seconds, another of us falls victim, yet 50% of those with dementia never get diagnosed. There is not a single FDA-approved drug that actually slows the progression of Alzheimer's disease. There have been too many failed late-stage clinical trials with promising drugs that seemed to work until it became clear they did not. Sometimes I think we'd be better off if Alzheimer's disease was a brand new emergency instead of a century-old threat to which we had somehow become inured. Perhaps people would understand that when it comes to this disease, everyone is a stakeholder because everyone is at risk. There are also 15 million caregivers just like me, unintended victims and not among the official count. Add to our legions those caring for loved ones, young and old, with diseases of the brain, traumatic brain injuries, and other chronic diseases complicated by a memory disorder. We speak the same language. Our numbers amplify the collective pain that makes it impossible for me to rest. The only way to minimize the effect of Alzheimer's disease is to get out in front of it, delay its onset, or even reverse it's a devastation of the mind. We need to move toward early diagnosis and study adults who do not yet show symptoms. People like you and me. Such a decision entails hard personal choices, risks, and emotional discomfort. It means demanding safe and clinically valid genetic tests that let us learn if we are at a higher risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. It requires managing our lives and choices under the shadow of the possibility of disease. Those of us who are 50 years or older must stop viewing ourselves as ageless. All of us should track our cognitive health, just as we do cholesterol levels or blood pressure. I write for all of us who are still well, but have seen the devastation of Alzheimer's disease firsthand. The emergency is with us and in us. I write to clinicians, reluctant to diagnose because they can't effectively treat. Please know the inadvertent trauma you inflict on families, left confused, hurt, and helpless. Then time runs out on the ultimate conversation with our loved ones about end-of-life wishes. Their minds are erased. It's simply too late. I write to reach the generation of our adult sons and daughters who struggle to understand our lives as we care for a loved one with Alzheimer's. They stand on the precipice and wrestle with issues and decisions similar to the ones we've faced. They deserve better options and not the bankrupting burden of our care. 
This is not the legacy we want for our children, or the way any of us wish to be remembered. I write for my grandchildren, because no matter how hard I tried, Alzheimer's blanketed my home with sadness. I know that loving each of them unconditionally has been my salvation. One day, I hope they'll read these words and appreciate my choices. As I write these words, a faint glow fills the room I share with Harvey. He is always present, even though he is absent. There is an intimacy in our isolation. Nonetheless, I am willing to open the door to our room in the hope that you will find a way inside. Only then will my story be worth the pain of its telling. And thank you, Merrill, for that. And Merrill is now the president and CEO of the Jeffrey Bean Foundation Alzheimer's Initiative, which promotes early diagnosis of the disease. It struck her husband, her beloved husband, at the age of 58. A brutal stealth invader, 5.4 million in the U.S. alone suffer from the disease. Harvey's story and his bride's, Merrill Comer, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 